The dirty secret is that no one's ever going to get paid back. People have the shortest memories when it comes to investment. We just got to get Keith into Bitcoin. Hey, there's a bubble. Welcome back to the Looney Hour, episode 29. As always, joined by the three amigos, or as Keith likes to say, the three hosers. Uh, we've got uh, Rich Diaz with Acorn Macro Consulting, and we've got Keith Dicker with Ice Cap Asset Management in the sexy black shirt. Uh, welcome back, gentlemen. Um, to get into this week's show here, uh, again, the Looney Hour live event in Vancouver, May 12th. Uh, we're about half sold out right now, so tickets are moving fast. We will probably be sold out here, I'm going to guess, in the next few days. So um, head over to our Eventbrite page. Uh, there's going to be a link. If you're listening on Spotify or Apple Podcasts, whatever, there'll be a link in the description where you can go directly to purchase tickets or 30 bucks. And same thing if you're watching this on YouTube. Again, check the link in the description below. Uh, to go get your tickets. So looking forward to that. It's going to be a great event. Um, you know, we'll do the live live podcast. We'll do a Q&A after. There's going to be beers and booze flowing. Uh, free sliders. Keith's going to be, you know, devouring them all. Um, but there should be some left for for everybody. There's no, we're, we're still undecided on the Velcro suit. Uh, we're going to see if we can line that up. There's been a hot demand for that. But anyways, like I said, uh, May 12th in Vancouver. We'd love to see you. Um, we continue to build this community here. And uh, all we ask is that you share the podcast as well with, with one friend or family member. Uh, let's dive into this week's show, gentlemen. Um, you know, maybe a little bit update here from, let's say, the Bank of Canada. I'm expected to go another 50 basis points. Some, some comments from uh, our favorite governor, Tiff Macklem. Uh, who says, I will not rule out increasing interest rates more than 50 basis points, but it would be very unusual. Of course, he's referencing the upcoming June meeting, but it seems all but sure that we will get 50 basis points uh, again in June, which as we've talked about in the show, all you have to do is look at, well, the BOC has raised rates by 75 basis points and housing has already hit a brick wall. Um, we're still running real negative interest rates of about 6%, negative 6%. So again, financial repression. If you're looking for your opening line to swoon any females, um, financial repression as Rich has, has advocated for. Uh, but I wanted to touch quickly on what's kind of happening uh, here locally in, in you know Vancouver. We're, we're getting a lot of uh, anecdotal stories and I've actually haven't heard this. Like there was, you know, a bit of a bear market here in 2017, 18 and people like a couple of lawyers we've been sort of in communication with uh, have been, been reporting buyers trying to back out and renege out of firm contracts. So basically they're saying, Hey lawyer, um, I want to back out of my contract. I'm willing to walk away from my deposit. Um, and the lawyers are going, no, 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 you can't, you can't just back out and lose a deposit. Like you could blow up three deals here because they're all kind of connected to each other and you're going to get sued for damages. So, um, having several lawyers coming out and saying, Hey, we're getting an unusual amount of calls, two, three phone calls a day, with people backing out of contracts. Um, again, is very fascinating when we really consider that rates are only up, uh, the overnight rate in Canada is of course is at 1%. 
the fed who hasn't even really started the rate hiking cycle. I mean, they've raised 25 basis points. They're supposed to go what 50 basis points in may. Is that right? Yeah. 50 basis points in may. Uh, and to and maybe add to some confusion, Rich, we'll get you to unpack is, um, us GDP in Q1, uh, negative. Um, so Rich, I, I mean, there's some, some nuances behind this. So maybe just give our listeners a, a little bit of background and then maybe we'll jump to Keith for, maybe his financial commentary on what does a negative GDP print potentially do to the Fed? Okay. So, I mean, we've talked about this a little bit before in the past is that you have to be careful when you're out of such a severe dislocation. Um, you know, you have the ver- reverberation of the data that, and when you, know, in many ways, we're still in the Corona virus pandemic, um, maybe not necessarily sort of in lockdown or, you know, the obsession over vaccinating people or et cetera, that, but we are definitely still in the midst of it with respect to the economic consequences of those um, political and economic decisions. Um, supply chains, for example, would be a quick and easy way of a, sort of an, an example of that. Um, so when you're looking at these GDP numbers, I think it's important to just remember, keep that in mind. Um, but anyways, let's just get right to it. So it's, it's with negative 1.4 um, is the, is the number um, it's, these are seasonally adjusted annual rates if, for people who are inclined for that, who need that kind of detail. Um, I actually think that yes. So obviously negative that worse than is obviously bad and positives are generally good, but I think there's a couple of takeaways that I thought were, were actually really good. I I'd like to be, I'm an optimist and I, I have a constructive view on growth. So forgive my bias, but I think it's important. Number one, I think that the, a lot of the negatives was due to the imports. So imports, um, were seven, were up 17%. Uh, 17.7%. That's incredible. Um, and so the way, if you look at GDP, I'm not going to get into, you know, this is not a, this is not a teach in, but you know, GDP equals basically consumption plus government spending plus, um, investment and then minus net exports. Um, I'm sorry, plus net, uh, net exports. And in the U S net exports are negative. So they have a huge, uh, deeply negative current account balance um, and um, they a trade, excuse me, negative current, uh, negative trade balance, excuse me. And so how much you import and how much you export affects your GDP. If you import a lot and you don't export a lot, um, you obviously your GDP goes down. Um, and so that's, that's one of the larger or bigger contributing factors to this quarter's GDP um, and why it's negative. Another thing, but um, on the positive end, um, so, so why I think that's positive, actually, sorry if I rewind, is because imports mean you have a strong, you have strong consumption. So it's, it's kind of, it's contradictory. It's kind of weird. But if you pull yourself away, you know, an economy that's actually importing lots of goods is actually doing relatively well because people are consuming. Um, and if you're export, if you're weak on the export, it might be a reflection of, you know, outside of your economy, not doing so hot. Yeah. How much of that is retailers like restocking like warehouses and, you know, beaten down supply chains. Like, you know, I'm always thinking like, okay, if I'm like a furniture store that, you know, it takes eight months to get a couch and historically over the last year and a half, maybe I start ordering a lot more couches and just throwing them in my warehouse. Yeah. So that's definitely part of it. Um, I think that's, that's definitely part of it, but it's also, you know, it's not the whole story. We know that goods, for example, um, there's also, you know, that, that is its own line item on the, actually the release I'm looking at right now, for some reason, doesn't actually have that number, but which is kind of not good, but the, there's a lot of, um, imports of 
um, goods and services, which is also, you know, that's the other, the trick, you know, you don't need to necessarily restock services. Um, services were up 3.8%. Oh, sorry, sorry. We're up, you know, 4%. Sorry. And goods. Yeah. There was a huge amount of goods that were imported. And, and, and in general, that is part of it. There's inventories are still very, very low and they're improving. So what, what would be your like overall summary? If you could like dumb this down to sort of just a typical listener saying, okay, well, g- give me the, give me the Coles notes. Like, are, are you bullish or bearish after this print? Like, do, is there any takeaway or is it just like fade, fade the number completely and just ignore it? No, I think that there's three positive takeaways um, and one negative. Three positives are imports are going up. That's a good thing, even though it's bad for GDP growth. Two is the gross fixed capital formation, which is another way of saying investment or CapEx is also positive and okay, along with services. And the other thing is there was a big negative from government consumption. So federal spending on, for example, defense and other non-defense items was negative and that dragged down GDP. So on the whole, like, yes, I get the number, you know, I, I preface it all by saying that the volatility, you gotta, you gotta be careful when it, we're still in this mess. And so you, it's not, you know, it's, we're not in a normal cycle. And so you have to be careful about judging over of spending too much time judging these numbers. But in general, I think it was actually okay. But, you know, I, I, I'm a glass half full kind of guy. So I don't know, maybe Keith can, can pour some water on my yeah. optimism. Yeah, Keith, I don't know. If you, do you have any takeaways? I mean, again, particularly maybe from like a financial market perspective of does the Fed even look at this and go, mm, okay, or is it just like, nope, status quo, 50 beeps. And, you know, I, I mean, I'm curious, I don't know if rate hike expectations from the market have changed at all or, or just completely unchanged and fade the number. Yeah, so just to have a couple of things. The, the first thing, this will not change what the Fed is going to do. So the Fed, you know, they'll continue on this path. You know, Rich, I, I love the optimism that that's fantastic. I'm a realist, okay? So let's look at it from that kind of perspective, which I know Steve is, Steve likes as well. Okay, so um, so I think like the difference with, with the view that I'll share with you now, what Rich just viewed with you, Rich is sharing the view from, from a US-centric view, and everything he said is, is correct. The view that I'm taking on it is from a global perspective. And there, there are a lot of check marks from, from this data point, which again, I think I mentioned before, I like guess an investment manager, and you, you wake up every morning or afternoon for, for some guys, I guess, but you want to see what's happening in the world. And is there anything that's happening that's either going to cause you to adjust your view or change your view, or is there something happened that really further reaffirms your view? So today for us, this is a big day in the market. Like this is just outstanding. So we'll, we'll go into the first one with the GDP, GDP print. So, our view for a while now that we've shared is that, you know, with the Americans raising rates, this is going to suck capital out from the rest of the world. And my concern has been that the EM world and, and Europe, everyone else, they're going to start slowing and, and all that stuff. And so when I see, you know, net exports for the U.S., you know, it, it's, it's fall. You know, the Americans are importing more, but they're exporting less. I see the exporting less function to mean that the rest of the world is consuming less. So this, this confirms my view that the global economy is slowing and I don't get too, you know, caught up in, you know, the headline number was negative, of course, which, which was an initial shock. But again, we're headed for a slower economic environment coming up. Uh, the other one that we've talked about before is that, you know, uh, government spending fiscal s- stimulus is going to be declining. 
and that that showed up in, in this report as well. So th this report for us here at IceGap is just telling us, hey, this this is this is the path we're ahead of we're going down. It, it's it hasn't changed. No, nothing from this report ha has changed. You know whether next quarter would be another negative print. I, I don't know. I, I don't know the number that well. Uh, don't be surprised if it's another positive, sorry, if it's a positive print and not negative. But the other thing, uh, you know, from the Fed's perspective, they're looking at this for saying, hey, this is stagflation right now. You know, we, we have inflation, growth is slowing, and that's, that's a pretty tough cocktail coming up. So that, that's the initial thought uh, from my side. I know, Rich, you were... Well, there's just one tiny, just was one tiny thing that I think it's important to add, which you touched on slightly, which was that these numbers get revised a lot. I mean, GDP is a backward looking indicator. So as far as the market's concerned, I think a lot of this may or may not have been priced in. I think anybody who's really obsessed about GDP probably has their own models and has their own view on it. That's the first thing. And second thing, these, a lot of these numbers get revised. And so it's important to just like, yes, it's important to sort of acknowledge it and do exactly what Keith said, which is to confirm or deny your previous outlook or your view. But it's also, you can't take too, too much stock in it. GDP is really, really hard to calculate for an economy with 330 million people. It's often revised significantly. And so you have to just, you know, take it for what it is, which is just another sort of crumb on, on the road. Rich, I think you've somewhat updated your views as well, which we'll probably get into here shortly. But um, to, to me, I mean, it feels like there's a lot of stuff happening, you know, under under the surface, um, you know, which is, I think was the, the bank of Japan was out again. I know we've talked about this last couple episodes, but they were out again saying now it's like unlimited bond buying in order to sort of maintain their yield peg. Um, and meanwhile, what is their currency against the U S dollars now at a, what 20 year low, uh, the finance minister was out, um, I don't know, it was today or yesterday saying um, that they were going to respond, quote, appropriately to abrupt the moves after the currency plunged. Um, so, yeah, I mean, and then you've got, so now, so like they're trying to maintain their peg. Like I'm trying to sort of keep this simple here, but they're trying to maintain their peg. Meanwhile, the US dollar is going to start, <laughs> or sorry, they're not trying to maintain their peg, but they're trying to maintain their yield curve control. Uh, that, that's what I meant. And uh, the Fed is going to start raising rates, but probably by 50 basis points next month, which we've talked about sucking capital into strengthening the US dollar. So weakening the yen even further, like something like just feels like something is going to break here. Um, so Keith, I don't know if you have any updated views on what's happening with the Japanese yen, because basically these, a lot of these central bankers are kind of screwed and they're like, basically looking at the Fed and going, oh shit, please don't raise rates. But the Fed's like, well, we got a domestic inflation problem here and political pressures. So we gotta, we're gotta, we going to do what we need to do. So this was the other event that caught my attention. Actually, it was the first event. So I get up you know, this morning early and my screen, there's not a lot, of hap lot happening on it, except the yen is down 2%. And if, if a currency is down 2%, that's, that's enormous, especially when everything else is, is flat. And uh, so I really want to share this, and, and I cannot emphasize this enough. As of today, this is the financial market event over the last 10 years. Like This is incredibly important to understand why it's happening and why it's different. You know, and people say, oh, it's 
different this time. That doesn't work. Uh, th that's false. So with with Japan, they've been in this you know forty year period of of deflation. They've been printing money, QEing, deficits, you name it. And people say, well, you know that that's never worked out before. So it's never caused any stress before. Today. We now have this global economy, global monetary policy, and global fiscal policy, wacky geopolitics. Everything is synchronized. And for the first time over the last 40 years, interest rates are starting to rise aggressively in the Western world. So the overnight rates are being, you know, they're increasing because of the Bank of Canada, the Federal Reserve. And also, you, you know, we talked about last week how bond markets are, are getting crushed around the world. So that means long-term interest rates are going up. In Japan, they cannot tolerate that. So if rates start going up in Japan, so you get a couple of things that's happening here. First of all, it, it just completely blows out their government borrowing um, levels. So deficits are surging because they had to pay two, three, four percent more on it. Also, the banks, the pension funds and the insurance companies, they're stuffed to the gills with Japanese government bonds. So if, if interest rates move up dramatically, these guys have huge losses on their bond portfolios. And if something breaks, they get something breaking on, on their regulatory capital, which is even worse. So you have that stress taking place. So the, the Bank of Japan, because remember, you have the Americans raising rates, the Canadians, everyone else in Japan, they can't raise rates. It, it just doesn't work. So you have that pressure taking place from all over the world. So the Bank of Japan, they had a decision to make. Okay, do we want to protect the bond market? and let the currency go off sides or save the currency and let the bond market go off sides. And they have no, they're both horrible outcomes, but the least horrible outcome is to save the bond market. So just imagine now you hold a, a 10 year government of uh, a Japanese government bond. You know that, you know, you're going to get paid a quarter point on it. That's S. So 0.25% is your return on it. You're a foreign investor. You also know you're going to now get hosed on the, uh, on the FX side of it. And you know what? There's a guaranteed buyer right now. And if that guaranteed buyer suddenly says, I'm not going to guarantee the price anymore, you know, the price is just going to plummet. So you're selling. You're, you're getting out of this, right? So you're selling your Japanese government bond. You now have yen in your pocket, and now you're going to sell that yen and buy dollars or Canadian dollars or, or euro, whatever you want. So that's been happening. Like it, it gobs of this stuff happening, especially over the last 24 hours. On top of that, just say uh, you like this, this carry trade you might hear about. So I'm thinking now, um, you know, Rich is a sharp guy. He's going to say, you know what? I'm going to go over and borrow like a gazillions of dollars of yen at 0.25%. I'm going to sell that yen right away and then buy overnight treasuries because I'm going to earn 1% in it. It's a win, win, win. So you have, you have that stuff happening as well. So the point is now all of a sudden you got this huge shift. The yen is coming off aggressively. Like there's no bottom in, in sight here, but they'll just let it go until we find a floor, but that's not the best part. We'll, we'll, I'll let you guys comment further on Japanese, but then we'll go, to the, we'll go to the other part. But the other part is, but people don't realize what's happening as well, is with the, uh, the CNY. So the Chinese currency, that moves lockstep and barrel, I guess, if that's a bad quote. But it, it moves in line with Japanese yen as well. And CNY is now at its like stressful point as well. And I'll explain why that's happening as well. But you guys want to comment on the whole yen story? We well, no, I mean, I'd like to just really add something on top of that, which is like, 
you know, we talk like it's a Canadian show, but here we are talking about like Japan. Right. And like, but this is the whole reason why we started this show, because like, I'm literally like, you know, I live on Twitter basically. And, you know, part of my day job is just responding to trolls. And, you know, these guys are like, Oh, you know, who cares about all these over levered Canadian house households, like the bank of Canada is going to keep raising rates and that's what they need to do. And if a couple households go bankrupt, big deal. And it's like, everyone's so focused on like raising rates and like looking at Canadian housing. It's like, no, no. Like I'm looking at like what Keith just said, I'm looking at the Japanese yen. Like I'm looking at, you know, I mean, Japan's government debt to GDP is 252%. I mean, like that, how many, like, I just like, I'm just thinking here is like how many Canadian households are sitting there and like their equity and like, you know, they're richer than they think. Like not, I can't think of anyone that's actually thinking Oh yeah, what's wonder what the Japanese yen's doing today, and how that might impact like the the asset value of my house, which is like my largest asset. So when we talk about these foreign markets, like just understand that there's always a correlation, and that all these financial markets are tied in together. And I think that's really like the biggest thing when we see all these like bank economists coming out with these forecasts that they're economists. They're looking at like charts and graphs they're not looking at financial markets they're not looking at the underlying and how that can all sort of interconnect uh but rich i'll, I'll let you maybe comment further um, but i'm just trying to sort of tie in all the correlations uh for canadians to sort of keep note of here um so on the yen i don't have much to add on the yen. i think keith's outlined it really extremely well i think i'll just add a little bit of context maybe from a, from a data perspective i mean the two um you know keith uh, was a little bit cavalier and saying, oh, it's not, it's quite rare to have a 2%. I'll tell you exactly how rare since 2015, I think it's happened like four or five times. Um, so if you think there's 250 odd, 260 odd trading days in a year over a span of seven years, and this is probably the fourth or fifth, I can't, depending on when you start and what your category is. I think one of the occurrences, it was 0.1.99% down in one day. So let's just throw that into the 2% bucket. This is an extremely, extremely rare day for such an important economy. Remember, Japan is about 10 to 12% of global economy. The J Japanese equity market is, you know, six to 8% of the global equity market. This is a big deal. This is a big deal. Um, you know, you, you know, we don't, you know, their largest economy, no? Yeah. I mean, well, yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, it, it, you know, it's obviously China on a PPP basis. China is the largest economy in the world. Then you got the US and then you got, you got Japan. So it, this is when you have, and, and it's, I think it's, you know, after the US is probably the largest amount of sovereign debt in the world. So you, when you have that kind of move in such an important currency, you know, it doesn't matter if you're in Cornerbrook, eventually, <laughs> you know, you, you'll be, you, it'll be affecting you um, somehow. And I think it's, so it's really important that we have these discussions. Um, I, I think Keith's got a much better handle on Japan as, a, as an equity market and, and as a financial. Um, so I'll pass it back to him. But I just think just to give you an idea, it's only been three or four times in the last seven years of trading. Did you say Cornerbrook? I was trying to think of a random place in Canada that doesn't care about <laughs> Japan. <laughs> what are you going against people in Cornerbrook? What are you against people in Cornerbrook? We used to go uh, back when I was in school. We, we used to go to Marble Mountain for a, for a ski weekend uh, every winter. That was that was a good time. That was a good time. That sounds you like know, a fake you know, place. You know who's not thinking about the Japanese yen is Rick from Red Deer. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> 
Okay. So, but okay, here's a uh, here's something to throw out for the Looney Hour uh, fan that we have, um, and I'll share why I, I believe this is going to happen. I think this is now setting the stage for the probability that the Bank of Canada will be cutting rates in 23. That's what we're headed towards. So I'm going to line that up with you and why I think just, that's going to take You place. just pissed off a lot of millennials. Well, that'd be great for them, right? If rates are going to come down. Oh, I mean, man, the millennials want, the millennials want housing to crash. They need to get in. Oh, <laughs> okay. Um, I mean, so, I mean, don't get me wrong. I still think housing is under, okay, guys, but we'll, another story. But housing is still under pressure. Don't worry. Uh, they'll probably keep raising <laughs> rates until something breaks, as we've talked about. But I, I'm a, I'm in your camp, Keith. I think rate cuts in 23. But uh, let's see. Anyways, continue. And there's some great ways to play that as well. By the way, like it's looking really nice. Uh, okay, so uh, you know, I mentioned plug. Uh, plug plug. I think I mentioned what's happening with with China as well. Uh, so in China, you know, we've already talked about they actually cut rates a few weeks back. Um, their currency is pegged to the dollar or a basket, the dollar plus a few other, a few other guys. And, um, their capital account is closed. It's a very different economy in, in, in China than anywhere else in the world. So it's hard to go apples to apples with anything. However, we do know that whenever yen experiences pressure, uh, uh, the Chinese currency experiences pressure as well. And uh, the amount of pressure experienced by the yen right now, uh, to say it's through the nth degree, if you want to pull up your charts on the Chinese currency, that's also skyrocketing, but nowhere close to what's happening in, in Japan right now. And I'll share with you why, why that's happening and why the problem, remember we live in, in, in my world, we live with probabilities and it's never a 0% to 100%. You always like sort of move your, your lever, you know, up and down in between, but the probability of, of the world experiencing a, a significant shock right now, which will be a deflationary shock, by the way, it, it's now gone up dramatically with what's, with what's happening in, in Japan this morning. Uh, so in, in China, you know, they also have the inflation problem. They're not able to raise interest rates because if they do, they'll just crush their, their real estate market, basically. They already have stress with their real estate developers. That's happening. The currency is pegged, so they can't use that as, as a relief valve. A pegged currency, and especially in China, it only works really well with little stress if U.S. dollars are flowing in all the time, right? So if, if global trade is going well, they got dollars flowing in, they're able to swish it around, maintain the peg, and, and that's not happening right now. You also have inflation is going up around the world. China imports everything, basically. You think about it. They import all the basic raw materials, and then you know they'll they use it to create whatever else, and then export that. Um, so one view of what's happening in China right now is with with the lockdowns they're having from from COVID in, in Shanghai, and I forget the other large city. Um, I don't know. I, I don't know. I think where it Beijing is, is, or Beijing is supposed to be getting locked down next. Apparently. Yeah, it's, it's pretty significant. So, so it's sort of irrelevant why they've locked down. But by doing that, remember, we've talked about how can the central bank reduce inflation? You know, and, you know, the Americans and Canadians want to raise rates and all that stuff. And, and when we've said before here on the show, you know, another way to do it is just to crush your economy. That's how you really bring demand down directly as opposed to this, you know, loosey-goosey kind of way. Um, so that's what China is doing right now. They're reducing their domestic demand. 
And you've also noticed commodity prices have now been coming off as well, right? I mean, oil, oil is down from that peak that it had. Uh, everything else is sort of sliding. I mean, the curve, into... I mean, there's a oil curve, which has gone up, yeah. but that's a we keep going. But you, but China right now, they're, you know, they're starting to, to, to shut this stuff down. And uh, so which is causing this stress on their peg? Because there's not enough dollars coming in. Domestic spending is, isn't happening and whatnot. That's also putting stress on the Hong Kong dollar peg as well. Um, that's really the conduit, in which with HSBC, by the way, that's that's their bank that they use as well, by the way, to get everything in and out. But you have you have all this stuff happening, and if for whatever reason one of these pegs break, it's either the the Chinese currency or, or Hong Kong dollar. You know, one one leads the other. By the way, like there's no way one can survive without the other then we we get this very dramatic deflationary shock around the world but then you will see the response from that of course would be central banks no longer raising rates and then even cutting rates so the probability of that scenario happening so you're looking out into canada maybe say nine to 15 months that's what i so you know a few months ago the probability of that happening was was quite low you know, it, it was, it's a non-zero event, but not zero. Now, from our view, all of a sudden, it, it's increasing. It's going up. So right now, the market is expecting the Bank of Canada to be at 3% in December of 22. So what's that, eight months, seven months away? I don't know. Um, I'm suggesting that the probability of them, if they do get to 3%, that'll be it. That, that'll be peaking. And then they'll either be flat thereafter, or they'll be cutting. But th this is one of these moments where then what markets are pricing and then what a very smart narrative will tell you, it, it could be something very different. And this is a dream, like from an investment manager's perspective, you say, wow, this, this could be a really cool opportunity. And it all started by seeing what's happening in Japan. So that's a bit of a roundabout way of what, what's happening. Did you guys, okay, Rich, go ahead. No, no, go, go, go. I was going to say, did you see, was it, uh, the Fed funds rate is supposed to get to 5%. That's what Deutsche Bank said. Not happening. Well, are, are, these guys actually happening. That, are these guys actually that dumb? Or well, I don't understand. No, I, I mean, so I think, is, like, are they trying to make ahead, money man. off of that statement or something? Like, come on. I mean, yeah, I mean, I think it's a bit boring for me, from my perspective, because I think Keith and I, my, my views changed. Um, I'm much you know, you know, six months ago, I was very bullish. And, you know, when the data changes, you got to change your view. And the three things that have changed my view, which have really aligned with Keith. Um, and, you know, two of them, he, he had no control over. So I'd throw them in the Keith's lucky bucket. But one of them, you know, he had spot on. And the two that he had no control over is I was certain that after the Olympics, that China would back away from their COVID zero policy. And then Keith carefully skated over that. But let's be clear, if China unlocked their economy and got over this obsession with getting rid of COVID, you wouldn't have the backlog of supply uh, of boats in Shanghai Harbor. You, you know, a lot of the, the deflationary things that are going on um, wouldn't be going on. And so that's something I didn't anticipate. And, and, and like, I, I have to, you know, I have to incorporate that into my analysis. The other thing that I think we just keep forgetting about is the, is the war in Ukraine, which we haven't discussed in a couple of weeks, but by all measures, I think that that's going to be a much more protracted and much uglier war than certainly Vladimir Putin expected, but the rest of the world. And so even though it's not on the headlines, because everybody's worried about, you know, 
I don't know, the Kim Kardashians or something dumb like that. I mean, it's, 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 it's going to have, you know, if, if, if they do not allow, um, oil to be imported into the EU, like, you know, I think Poland's already said that they're not going to do it. I'm not going to start, not going to import oil, but these are deflationary impulses that I don't think any of us were expecting three or four months ago. And then the final thing, which I think Keith alluded to, which I think is really important and which is affecting sort of my view on risk assets is I think that the fed is, I think the fed is going to be stubborn and it's, and this is where I, I'd love to hear, you know, Steve and your, and Keith's view on, but um, which is, I think that they're going to raise rates, even though, and this is going to make me sound, you know, contradictory, is that they probably should be realizing that the, they are the global central bank, and what the global, gl- the world needs right now is actually probably to hit pause on that, um, and to, to sort of a- a mitigate China's, you know, intransigence on COVID zero. And I know that th- those two things can never be, you know, you can't have those things together, but I think that's really important. The other thing, Keith, I wanted to add for the, before we go on is, is there's something called a policy trilemma, which Keith sort of is alluding to, and or some people call it the impossible trinity. And this is why China's monetary and fiscal policy and exchange rate policy is so kind of silly in a way. And, and it, it always, in effect, leads down the same road. And that policy trilemma comes from having, you can have, you have to, you get to pick two of the following three options. Free exchange rate, monetary policy, autonomy, and free um, capital mobility. And you get to choose two of those three. So if you fix your exchange rate, you don't get to decide what your interest rates are, and you can have capital flow in and out. Or if you, or like in the U.S., you choose your, um, you choose your interest rate. Um, and you have free capital mobility, but you don't choose what your exchange rate is. Exchange rate goes up and down. And what China does is they try to have a closed capital account and they want to manage their exchange rate. But in effect, what that happens is, in effect, you, you hand over monetary policy decisions to, in this case, the Fed. And so as the Fed is raising interest rates, <laughs> you obviously, in a, in a world where China needs to lower interest rates to keep interest rates low, they're in this bind. And so ultimately, that's what Keith is alluding to when he talks about whether it's Japan. Japan is has free mobility. They want to peg their interest rate low. And so you can see the exchange rate devalue d- d- significantly. China is a different economy. They want, they don't want to have a free capital movement, and but they want a pegged exchange rate, and therefore they lose the ability to control their monetary, uh, their monetary policy, their interest rate. And so this, it's called the policy trilemma, I think, or the impossible trinity. But basically, all of, in effect, the reason it's called the impossible trinity is because countries, especially authoritarian countries, try their best to manage all three of these balls at the same time. And ultimately it ends in tears, which is, I think Keith, did I, did I do a good job on that? I mean, maybe I screwed that up, but what, what did you call it? The impossible what? Trinity. Is that your opening line at the bar? <laughs> have, you, have you heard of the impossible Trinity? And Hi, I'm Richard Diaz. Hey, have you ever heard of the impossible trinity? I'll show you the impossible trinity. (laughs) Jeez. But I think that's a better uh, that's a better line for you, Rich, than the (laughs) other one. The financial financial repression. Oh man. You want to hear about the impossible trinity? And the response would be, I know I I know what it's gonna be. It's like the impossible trinity does sound a little bit more curious. 
That's true. Okay, I'll try that next time. But maybe it should be the possible Trinity, because you know you're you want to go down that route. We'll okay. we'll get yeah, you, you lined up. Positive. Right? Yeah. Want to be positive. Want to be positive. So in Vancouver, if you see Rich lined up at the bar, you know you're going to be in for a bit of a doozy conversation. Let's say everybody pull out your Twitter account or your uh, Tinder accounts. Listen, you monkeys can make fun of me all you want. I'm right about this. <laughs> that's what leads China, Rich, that's what leads China into trouble. Yeah, go ahead. Sorry. Rich is absolutely right because one thing, uh, if you have your currency pegged, it's through the U.S. dollar, which means you do not have monetary policy control. So you you cannot control the money supply or the level of interest rates. Uh, you're you're basically basically outsourcing that to the Fed. And that's why the Chinese, they had to cut interest rates suddenly there a few weeks back because they really, they did it to offset what, what the Americans were doing. And this is a problem all over the world. And so if you think about the story I was telling there earlier, you know, with, with, the, with the Japanese and the Chinese, uh, the, the next big market, that, so you have to look around the world. That's what we like to do. Okay. If this is happening in Japan, we know why, because they cannot tolerate rates going higher. Uh, they got to do QE, try to maintain it. Like nothing is working and it hasn't worked forever. So I look at that and I say, okay, wow, that, that's, that's, a great, that's a great allocation to make. But then you say, who else around the world is in a similar position or unfortunate position? And, and that's where you get what I call the, the economic fantasy land called Europe. I think, you know, I gave you my, my target for this. Oh yeah, great example. Europe. Yeah, I think euro will go to zero. I mean, that, that's where that thing is going. That, that's dramatic, of course. Uh, but again, with, with Europe, they have the exact same setup now as the Chinese. You know, and the euro files out there, oh, that's not true. You know, they got this, no, it is true. this and that. And, no, but yeah, it's true. Like, Greece, Greece is, is a dead. perfect example. No, but Greece is yeah, a perfect example. Absolutely Greece dead. Is gone, yeah. Yeah. Um, so, sorry to interrupt you, I, Keith, but sorry to interrupt you, Keith, but this is important. This is, I think, really important, right? So Greece is the perfect example of that, right? They, they have no control of their monetary policy, but you can only pick two of the three options. And that's what gets somewhere like Greece into really big trouble. And then you always have to devalue internally, which is what China is doing, which is destroying their consumption. Um, your real wages fall, you, you, you devalue internally, or you devalue, and that's what Greece did, right, in order to mitigate all that debt burden, or you devalue externally, which is what's going on, and in effect, you, you tank your currency, which is what's happening in Japan. And they're, anyway, sorry, carry on. Yeah, so what people don't realize with, with the Eurozone, so it's 19 countries that, that are in it. Uh, so it's every country that's in, the, uh, in Europe, except for Switzerland and a few others, which I can make lots of fun about. Europe. Uh, however, when all these countries decided to join the euro, a really interesting thing happened is that the Germans basically, their currency, the Deutschmark, went from around 180 down to one. Okay, let's just round the numbers. So they went from two to one. So they're, all of a sudden, their currency got cheapened by 50%. And what does Germany do the most with their economy? They sell stuff to everyone. So the it just is such a boon for those guys. Meanwhile, the Italians and the Greeks and the Portuguese and, 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 and the Spanish, you know, their currencies effectively doubled in value. So it became even more difficult for those guys to do stuff. So it was a, it was a great deal for Germany, uh, but a, a really bad, this is from a financial perspective, mind you, but it was a really bad deal, you know, for Southern Europe. And, you know, here we are now, like 25 years later, I guess, into it. And uh, which is very young for a for a major currency, by the way. Um, and then there's just cracks and, and, and chinks in this armor all over the place. And it's, so it sort of reminds me when you guys mentioned the, the IMF 
storyline yeah. this week. Tell us about that, Steve. Yeah, the uh, head of the IMF. So if you don't know the IMF, it's the International Monetary Fund. It's basically the central bank of central banks. Um, and so she was out. She was she did an interview, uh, TV interview with Jay Powell and Lagarde there of the ECB. And uh, she basically came out and said um, that sovereign defaults were likely this 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 year. Of course, she's more so referencing emerging markets, but she said sovereign defaults were likely this year and that we basically had to get out. And uh, the sooner that we were able to basically restructure um, the debt of some of these countries, the better. Um, and so, yeah, she went on to basically talk about what we talked about on the show um, and what Keith has really been banging his drum on, which is that, listen, the US dollar is probably going to strengthen and that's going to make these debt burdens even more heavy uh, for a lot of these um for a lot of these countries and that's going to suck capital out of those economies. And, and again, just create uh, all sorts of stress. So uh, pretty interesting to see really the, the head of the IMF coming out so publicly um, and, and saying that really it was kind of off the cuff. So I don't know if you have any additional thoughts on that, Keith, but. No, I mean, you, I think you described it very well. Well, So one thing, uh, I had a conversation yesterday with a guy about maybe the IMF stepping in to help countries. Uh, the, the IMF can work during a normal functioning global economy, and they can function when they need to help a very small country that, that needs help. Everything today has just been become coordinated on a global basis, and we're all at zero rates, zero percent rates. Sorry, and debt is you know at extreme levels. The, the IMF is not capable of helping any of these major countries if they run in, into trouble. So um, again, it's just to share with you, you know, the old school thinking. Yeah, the IMF can step in and help these guys out. They can't. It's it's not close to being an option. Well, is that not when they just go running to the Fed? Well, yeah, they go, everyone will go to the Fed anyway. I mean, that's your last for a swap line and swap lines. If you should, you, you know, for a bit of fun, um, maybe that's what you say at the bar, Rich. <laughs> yeah, for I was going to say. <laughs> Let's analyze some of the Fed swap lines. Um, hey, baby, what are you doing tonight? <laughs> you'll analyze some of those Fed swap lines. Swaps. That's what they do at the, the Boomer Castle. <laughs> yeah. Swap okay. night at the Boomer Castle. You should take a look at who has been approved to have a swap line with the Fed. And well, you'll notice it's all of the Americans' uh, geopolitical allies. So you could have a, monitor, a financial crisis taking place somewhere in the world. And then you have to figure out, hey, is, is the Fed or is, is, will the Fed step in, give them a swap line and stuff like that? If it's one of their non-friends, it ain't going to happen. Like it's it's just not happening. So uh, again, I just try to encourage people but I mean, to think of the world differently than a nice clean world that we live in. That people think empires have been right. empires have been using their monetary policy to soft or hard power for as long as there have been empires. Right? I mean, that's not particularly new. I mean, whether it's the Spanish Empire, or the Portuguese, or I mean, the Zulu warriors, I mean, everybody uses their, that financial muscle to, to get what they want. Yeah, I've got a question. Is the EU actually attempting to embargo Russian energy here? 
I thought Poland already sort of agreed to do that. It's not clear that they can at all. I've got a chart, which I'm happy to share that, you know, Steve uh, gratefully retweeted that just shows, I mean, EU produces no oil and they consume like 10 million barrels of oil a day. I can't exactly remember the number, but it's, it's, it's a lie. They, they can't, they cannot say no to Russian oil. It's just, it's not possible. They'd have to import every single drop of oil from the Middle East or the U S it's not tenable. I don't think it's a realistic thing to do. It's funny. I tweeted out yesterday. I said, um, I'm pretty bad at memory what I put out there. Some of it is good. And then there's this one. <laughs> <laughs> Something I don't remember. Now Steve's going through my Twitter line. What do they say? Uh, you know, it basically, if, if the EU, you know, shuts off Russian oil altogether, you know, who, who loses first, you know, Germany or Russia? And the answer, of course, is, is Germany. So, because yeah. uh, I saw one narrative is that, yeah, if the Europeans turn off the, uh, the Russian oil, you know, all the oil gets backed up and, you know, Russia, they need money coming in, all that stuff. Yeah, that, that's true. However, the, the, the Western world would just roll over if the Europeans roll over. And people might be thinking, hey, the winter's over now. They don't need the stuff to heat their home. So they got about a two month grace period. Then when the summertime is going to come and it gets freaking hot in Europe, it gets so hot there in the summer. And uh, so they need air conditioning on at that time. So, you know, they have a bit of a reprieve now maybe taking place, but it's coming. Yeah. I mean, pretty interesting, obviously that Russia is demanding payment for their, for their energy in rubles, Um, you know, kind of playing a little bit of chess there. I think there's checkers, checkers, chess, (laughs) playing swap lines with the fed. Um, I don't know. I mean, what else we got going on here? We've got the, you know, we talk about the, the carnage in the bond market uh, year to date, Rich, is this correct? The, the bond market's lost. Was it greater than 10% year to date now? Which yeah. The, I mean, it depends on what duration you're talking about. It depends on what kind of credit quality, et cetera, but more well, or less. I was 10, looking 15%. at the um, <clears throat> chart that uh, Jim Bianca put out, which is the total return of the Bloomberg global aggregate bond index. Yeah, um, it's off to its worst start, I think, in history. Um, so I like uh, I I tend to do this. I mean, I, I usually do that one, or I do um, the Vanguard Global Bond ETF, which is just a way of sort of doing something that everyone can sort of track on 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 you know Yahoo or whatever, and it's down seven point seven percent year to date. In dollar terms, I mean that that is, by the way, an incredible, incredible collapse in a in in what's supposed to be not risk free, but you know what I mean. It's supposed to be a fixed income. It's supposed to be safer. I mean, you're getting sort of equity vol. It, what is it? Return free risk. I think someone coined. I wish I had thought of that, but it wasn't me. I can't remember who that risk from, free return. Rich, the number. No, I know, but the bonds give you return free risk, right? That's the joke. <laughs> Oh, right away. I get it. <laughs> Boomer missed out. I'm sorry. That was really cute. <laughs> Way too sharp for me. But Rich, why don't you share with us um, the returns of some of these Canadian um, companies that are close to the uh, to the housing market? Oh yeah. Oh oh, yeah. good. Great transition. Because uh, we are getting towards the end of the show. We've really rarely talked about Canada this show. Um, so I apologize to our Canadian listeners, but as you guys know, as we talked about, it all ties in. So you got a lot of big dose of Japanese yen bombs in your, in your uh, audio there, but, uh, yeah, rich. So one of the things that we've sure. been talking about is, um, 
you know, the early cracks in Canadian housing. Of course, we, we opened up the show talking about people trying to walk away from deposits. And one of the best ways to look at that is really what's happening in the uh, Canadian banks. Um, so Rich, what's, what's going on over there? Well, before we, so the banks are easy. Everybody sort of knows that, but I think if we, if I may, we can just dig a tiny bit sort of below that level. So everyone already knows the banks, the banks haven't been doing well, but banks globally haven't been doing so well. So there's other companies that I like to look at or, and Keith actually is the one who put me onto one of these, which is home capital group. Now this is a, this was made famous by, um, I think Warren Buffett Warren got Buffett. an absolutely sweetheart deal to come in and buy enormous chunk of it at like, I mean, Warren Buffett, he's a great investor, but he also, he gets, you know, he gets, he gets, uh, he's definitely on a lot of people's speed dial, which helps his return profile. But anyways, um, and so he, so Home Capital Group, which is a Canadian based holding company. I'll just read here that they do basically lots of residential, sorry. Yeah, it's basically alt lending. So let's yes, put it exactly. this way. If you are a non-prime borrower, so if you're like, oh, I'm going to go to RBC and get a mortgage. Well, sorry, you're like, you know, you're self-employed. You know, you don't have a great credit history, blah, 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 blah. Your next bet is you go to home capital. Yeah. group. So it's like, it's a lot of self-employed. It's like, you know, right. Anyways, it's, it's less than stellar borrowers, basically, usually. But so it's already down 17% year to date. And, you know, that peaked at 44 and now it's at 31. So, you know, that's, I don't know, I'm, I'm really bad at arithmetic. So that's like 30%, I guess. Another company that I look at, um, which is, um, it's called ZZZ. If you want to look at, well, no, not, this is not, trust me, this is not investment advice, but um, ZZZ is Sleep, uh, Sleep Country Canada Holdings. And so it's, you know, this is sort of like a more esoteric, kind of something I, I like to look at indicators that are obviously very specific and very related, but I also like to look at sort of kind of um, second order indicators. So, you know, if you're buying a house, what, what would you need to do? You might buy a mattress. And so that's why I think sleep count, sleep country is like a good sort of, um, you know, indicator to look at this. And again, you're, you're down, you know, 33% year to date. Another company that I look at is, I mean, sorry, this is boring, but I think it's really one last one. And, I, and then I really want to say something about Stats Canada is the ticker is um, EQB, I think. EQB. Equitable Bank. Yeah. So it's the same thing. It's just one of these alt lenders. And again, you're, 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 you know, you're down significantly. So, you know, we were at $80, you know, just like a few months ago. And now we're at, you know, 58. So another 25%, whatever from, and it's just, it's another kind of, um, it's a financial service business that, that helps um, provide either home equity lines of credit or um, single family homes and stuff like that. And so, you know, if only there was a way to sort of short all these companies that win one go, but, um, but, uh, but yeah, so you can really see there's some cracks opening up definitely in, 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 in this housing story for sure. Another one is uh, the Americans love this one is the uh, Canadian tire. Yeah. Uh, that, that one's also down. I don't know, 10% this year, but, but Canadian tire is uh, for, mo- for those who aren't aware, it's, it actually has a huge credit division. Um, the issue. Oh, I didn't know of, that. Yeah. They actually issue a lot of credit cards. Uh, so a lot, a lot of deadbeat borrowers um, apparently. Vendor so, financing. That's what you call it really. Yeah. What do they call it? Well, I would call it vendor financing. That was the downfall vendor of financing. general, general electric. I mean, a few years back, they were on, on the island doing one of their, they thought they had an easy road show, you know, to pitch the, uh, the company. They go through all this stuff like, yeah, you know, we're AAA rated. And I'm looking, I said, you might think you're AAA rated, but you're all, as soon as your buyers stop 
financing stuff through you, you're, you're screwed. I mean, just what happens, That's, which is sort of why well, I, I mean, I, with, I mean, if you gotta, if you gotta, you know, finance your microwave, you, you might have a problem for pizza. For well, pizza. if you have to sell, if the people that are buying your product, the only way they can buy it is if you lend them money to buy it. You know, that's, but that's wait a second, wait, wait, wait. That that that's true of a lot of very, very okay. robust yeah. businesses, like car, like the, the uh, for example, Volkswagen Financial or whatever it's called. Is I mean, yeah. most car companies make most of more, and people may not know this, but a lot of car companies make more money from financing the purchase of their own cars and the servicing of those cars than the actual sale on the car. So Volkswagen is a perfect example of this. I mean, I get it if you've got to finance a house or a car, but I mean, if you're financing like your Nutribullet (laughs) blender for $99, I mean, come on, man. If you can't rub together a hundred bucks for a new blender, like you you probably shouldn't be buying it. But uh, the king of Kitslano. Yeah. (laughs) You're elitist. You're elitist. How dare you? Elitist comment that I can afford my own microwave. I mean, I really um, like going to Value Village. There's a free plug for them. They have lots of they have lots of used stuff that works really, really well. But oh, can I can I do my piece on Stats Canada, please, before we wrap up? Uh, sure. We'll, we'll, okay. we'll wrap. This won't take long. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> this won't take long. So I know I've realized I've been listening. I listen to our podcast every week, and I think sometimes we're a bit too negative on the Bank of Canada and the government of Canada. And so I promised myself this week we would give a little shout out, a positive shout out to an, an organization in Canada that probably doesn't get any credit um, or recognition, but I think deserves, frankly, Ooh. a really big pat on the back, <laughs> um, which is Stats Canada. And oh, I've been in the weeds of statistical data for the last 15 years. I love it. And um, I think Canada, Stats Canada has really upped its game. So congratulations, Stats Canada. They've redone and reorganized all their data. The revisions that they've done are excellent. They've lengthened the um, they've lengthened sort of how much how far the data goes back. So all the data that I show, whether it's debt service ratios or debt to GDPs, which by the way keep climbing in Canada, or inflation that goes back to 1960s, real interest rates are way too low. You know, all that stuff comes from Stats Canada, and they've really, frankly, improved their offering, which is all free and all online. Um, if only, you know, some of our financial ministers could go and dig it up themselves, maybe we could make it make better decisions, but in any event, they deserve, um, they deserve some kudos. So you should really be thanking Jagmeet Singh for approving the loan to fund the new budget at stats can, you know, we make, we make fun, but if you don't have data, even the government of Canada cannot read that data and then make terrible decisions with good data. I mean, you know what I mean? um garbage in um garbage out and so i just want to give them props they deserve it so it's all the people at stats canada listening good for you and thank you very much go uh, there you go That's okay <laughs> last last little last little joke just to to end it off um pierre pierre polyev uh announced today that he's going to <laughs> try to put a ban on the uh bank of canada's central bank digital currency plans uh, so to add sort of to the conspiracy theories, as we've chatted about on the show before, uh, there you go. Take take with it what you will. Um, but we'll leave it there. Did he, as announce, o- did he announce that? Yeah, he did this morning. Yeah, he I did. think Man, he, he said he wants to ban. Again, suicide is that he's he's. Yeah. Love him They're or hate him. him. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, love him or hate him. I, he said he came out and was like, I'm going to. 
we want to audit the Bank of Canada and we want to put a stop to them and their central bank digital currency program because this is going to nationalize. It's going to give the Bank of Canada too many powers, basically. Uh, which, he's right. I mean, he's, <laughs> yeah, he's, he's right. Of course, he's, he's definitely right. <laughs> not wrong. Um, but of course, you know, like, good luck explaining that to the average reader of CBC News. They're like, well, this guy's a crazy idiot. He likes Bitcoin. Bad man. Laser eyes. Um, <laughs> we'll leave it there. Uh, as always, guys, we appreciate the, the listener support. Come join us May 12th, the Looney Hour event. Again, if you want tickets, there's going to be a link in the description below. Whatever platform that you're listening or watching to this show on, you can easily go and get your tickets. Uh, like I said, we've, we don't have a whole lot left. So hoping to get those sold out here in the next few days and uh, looking forward to seeing everyone May 12th. And we'll see you next week regardless.